Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray together. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that uh, you have come to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you have made yourself known to us. And thank you, Lord, that we can gather this morning around your word to uh, hear from you, to understand you, uh, and Lord, to be sent out by you to share with others the great gift that you have given to us, to know you uh, and to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand that great mission that Jesus uh, means to send us on. As we reflect on that this morning, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, on the 12th of September in 1962, President John F. Kennedy gave a famous speech at Rice University, Texas. Uh, and he set before the people who were gathered there, and indeed before the entire nation, what must have seemed like an unthinkable, incredible goal. He set the, before them the goal of landing a man on the moon. He said this, We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organise and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we're unwilling to postpone and one which we intend to win and the others too. In that great speech uh, in 1962, a famous speech, one of Kennedy's most famous speeches, uh, the President set before his country a mission Something unthinkable to land a man on the moon and to return him safely to earth. Kennedy set before his country a mission. And here in this passage this morning that we're looking at today, Jesus sets his church, his people, a mission. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a lifelong learner of Jesus. We've seen that Jesus calls those who are weary and burdened to come to him and to find rest, to take his yoke upon them and to learn from him. We've seen that taking up that cost of following him, will, uh, that, that call of following him will cost us everything. We've seen that the goal of following Jesus is to strive toward that for which he has taken hold of us, that is complete holiness. We can't get there ourselves uh, but Jesus has died and risen again to make us 
holy. And one day when he returns to gather his people, he will do that fully in us. But in the meantime, we strive towards that goal of complete perfection in Jesus Christ. And that goal is not just an individual goal, it is a shared goal. We reach that goal through speaking the truth in love to each other by proclaiming Christ. Uh, And we've seen as well that the fruit of that discipleship is a life shaped by Jesus. But today we're focusing on one last question, and that is, how big is our aim in discipleship? How far is our horizon? What are we aiming for? What are we aiming to do? Well, in these verses that we read uh, from the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. Uh, Only a few chapters earlier, he'd been arrested, he'd been imprisoned, he'd been flogged, he'd been tried, he'd been executed and buried, and his disciples and his followers were scattered. They didn't know what to do. Uh, It looked like everything that they'd given their lives to uh, was a lie. It looked like the man that they believed was the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, was just a fake. But now, only a few days later, here he is, Jesus, the crucified one, standing before them, not dead, but alive. And it's at that moment, I think, that a whole lot of pieces begin to fit together in the minds of Jesus' disciples. They suddenly realize that this man is no fraud, that this man is no ordinary man, but God come in the flesh. They worship him as They would worship God. They give to Jesus what only belongs to God. The honour and the the worship that belongs to God. Even as they continue to doubt, they worship him. And Jesus, for his part, he claims the prerogatives of God. He says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's something that belongs to God. Not to an ordinary man. With his resurrection comes authority. The Father has entrusted to Jesus everything. He's entrusted everything to the Son. He's entrusted to Jesus, to his Son, all authority to judge and to save. And it's in that light that Jesus then goes on to say to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So here he is, the Son of God, standing before them. He's died for sins, for the sins of those who trust him. He's put away the wrath of God against the sins of his people. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered death. He's been enthroned by the Father as ruler over the whole world. And he will return to judge the living and the dead. But he stands for the moment, ready to receive all those who come to him in humility and trust. And so he says to his disciples, go and tell people. Go and invite people to receive the rescue and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The task, their task, the disciples' task, is to make more disciples, to make more followers. It's to invite the weary and the burdened to have rest, to invite the weary and the heavy laden to come and learn from Jesus. It's to invite people to give up everything in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to invite people to count the cost 
and to see that the cost is worth paying. It's to invite people to strive for that holiness for which Jesus Christ has taken hold of us. Jesus has been enthroned by his Father as the rescuer and the ruler of the world. He's given to him the authority to both judge and save. And people need to realize that, to acknowledge Jesus for who he is and to entrust themselves to him. That is the most important message that any person can hear. It's more important than the message that John F. Kennedy delivered in 1962. It's more important than any message that you can read in the newspaper or in, the, in any book or watch in any film. And the extent of Jesus' authority sets the extent of the mission which the disciples have been entrusted with. Jesus has been given authority over everything by his Father. Therefore, the task is to bring everyone into submission to that authority. The task is to make disciples of all nations. So there's no place on earth, there's no country, no town, no household, no school, no workplace, no street, no park, no corner, no sphere of life that is exempt from Jesus' authority. There's no place that's outside the bounds of Jesus' authority or outside the bounds of Jesus' rescue. There's no place on earth, therefore, that should not hear the good news that Jesus has come both to rescue and to rule. But here's the thing. In getting that message out to every corner of the world, God has enlisted us. It turns out that Jesus is returning to the Father and that he's leaving his disciples with a mission. The disciples, you can only imagine, must have seen Jesus and thought to themselves, fantastic, he's come back. It's the first day of the rest of our lives. But actually Jesus is coming back to send them out with a mission. And not just with a tiny little mission, but with a worldwide expansive mission to make disciples of all nations. And although Jesus' command was first and foremost to those 11 disciples gathered there on that mountain on that day, it's a task given to all of Jesus' disciples. Of course it's a task given to us because being a disciple of Jesus means following Jesus. And Jesus came into the world to make God known in himself. So following Jesus for us means making God known in Jesus too. But what does that look like? Here's this task, this expansive worldwide mission. But what does that mean for you and for me? I think it's important to understand that although this mission uh, was given to all Jesus' disciples, that doesn't mean that we all engage in that task in exactly the same way. It's a shared aim. We're a body working towards a common uh, task. It's a task that we, uh, not a task that we do on our own. It's a task that we do together. So Jesus was not commissioning 
these individuals to each go off and do their own thing. He wasn't commissioning one to go off there and another to go off there and for them all to lose track of each other. But he was commissioning these 11 men as leaders of the soon-to-be-established church to lead the church in making disciples of all nations. So the church as a body has a task to reach the lost. And how each of us fits into that and contributes to that differs. John Piper has uh, helpfully pointed out that uh, we can either be radical goers, that is, weaker ourselves can go radically to the far corners of the world, or we can be radical senders, that is, we give up everything in order to send others to the far reaches of the world. But he goes on to say, but the one thing that we can't be is indifferent to the mission of God to spread his fame throughout the whole earth. Not all of us will go to the Middle East with the good news of what God has done in Jesus. Not all of us will go to South Asia to take the good news of what God has done in Jesus. But some of us will. And some of us have. Some of us, as we've heard this morning, will go to other parts of the world still. But those of us who remain behind should not be disengaged from that mission because we ourselves are not going. Christ's honour and glory demands that we invest ourselves as part of that whole into the mission of Christ and his body. But how do we do that? I think a great place to start in working out uh, what place we have in God's mission uh, to reach the world with the message of Jesus, a great place to start is by asking the very simple question, Lord, what is the place that you have for me in your mission? So often I think we just forget to ask that question. Uh, and instead we kind of plan out the direction of our lives and we work out what it is that we want to do with ourselves and then we try and think about how we can fit the mission of God into the shape of our lives that we've already worked out. Rather than saying to God, here it is, here's my life, it's all on the table, everything that I am and everything that I have, it's all yours. What part do you want me to play in this mission? Now that might mean at the end of the day, that your life looks very much the same as it did before. That may be. You may still be working away as a teacher in this place or working away in the public service or whatever it is, working away in medicine in this place or in that place. But it may also be that your life looks very different after you ask God that question. We need to put our hands, our lives in God's hands and say, use me how you would. Take me where you want me to go to do what you want me to do in the way that you want me to do it. And I think we need to remember as well that that question is not just a one-off question. It's not a question that we ask 
when we're 18 or 19 or when we first become a Christian and then we stop asking that question and, and sort of just, you know, once we've got the one answer, that's it for the rest of our lives. But it's a question that we need to be asking all the time. You know, you've, you've been in that place for five years. Well, does God still want you to be there? Maybe he's calling you to, to go somewhere else. Maybe he's calling you to give up all the things that you treasure and you delight. Maybe he's, he's calling you to give up your, your treasured hobby or your, your, your treasured house or whatever it might be. The place that God has for you here today might be a different place tomorrow. God's place for you might be this job today and a different job tomorrow. Or it might be this job or this place today and the same job and that same place for the next 60 years. Who knows? But you've got to put it on the table and say to God, where is it that you want me? With the gifts that you've given me, with the opportunities that you've given me, what is it that you want me to do? The important thing is to keep putting our lives in God's hands. But to say uh, with Piper that not all of us are goers, uh, that is, we're not all going to the other side of the world, that doesn't mean that we're not all on the front line of Jesus' mission. Actually, in some ways, we are all goers. In some ways, we are all on the front line. So sometimes, I think we conceive of the church gathered, that is, when we come together on Sundays or in the middle of the week, sometimes we think of the church gathered as the front line of ministry. And so we sort of think that what we do is we leave our ordinary lives to step on Sundays or in the middle of the week onto the front line of ministry. But actually, that's the wrong way around. So what happens instead is that once or twice a week, we leave the front line and return to the supply depot in order to be uh, built up in the gospel, to worship God, to, to hear God speak to us, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, to speak to God in prayer, to call out for him, to be at work in our lives and in our world, to be so built up in the gospel that then when we return to the front line, we can take the gospel into the place where, where God has put us. We don't leave our ordinary lives to go to the front line, we leave the front line to come and be built up in the supply depot of God's church community in order to take the gospel back to where he has put us. That's important because what we are here together is a disparate group of people with different interests who are plugged into different areas of society. You can reach people that I will never be able to reach. You know, you... you you have fingers into areas of the world that I, I will never have access to and vice versa. You know what? Some of you will never have the kind of friends that I have. And that's okay. You're probably thinking, that's great. I don't want to be talking about the kinds of things that Carl was talking about. You know, people who are interested in maths and, you know, all that kind of stuff or, or interested in music. For most of you, maybe that's not where you're at. But maybe you're involved in the local gardening society or maybe you're involved... Uh, in, in, a, in a local craft group or whatever it might be, God has put you there on the front line of his mission to make the gospel known. 
So Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make more disciples. But we need to understand that making disciples is not just about the beginning of the Christian life, but about the whole of the Christian life. It's not just about getting people over the line, but getting them to maturity. Jesus expands on the task of making disciples by mentioning two other actions that should uh, sort of attend, if you like, this task of making disciples. Those two actions are baptizing and teaching. It helps, I think, in coming to understand what Jesus is saying, to think a little bit more about those two things. So first of all, in making disciples, we're to baptize them. What does that mean? Uh, Well, there are three quite common ways of thinking about baptism, I think, um, in popular thought at least. Uh, So in one view, baptism is a kind of profession of faith. So it's what you do when you become a Christian. Uh, It's a declaration to others that you believe the gospel. That's one view of baptism. Uh, Another view of baptism is that baptism itself achieves something. It does something spiritual. Uh, So in that view, by being baptised, people are changed and transformed. And that view often leads people uh, to being baptised over and over again because they think that their last baptism didn't do a good enough job. They need need some access to to the spiritual power of God and so they return uh, to being baptised again. According to another uh, view of baptism... Baptism is the thing that sort of gets you on the inside uh, so that salvation is yours to lose rather than something that you receive through faith in Jesus. Uh, that, that view is kind of often in popular thinking and theology is often tied up with uh, the baptism of children. Uh, in my uh, opinion, none of those views are particularly helpful Uh, when it comes to understanding what baptism is about. And in fact, many of them are deeply problematic. Instead, I think, the Bible's message on baptism shows us two things. One is, first of all, baptism proclaims what the gospel is. It's not so much talking about this person who is being baptised, but about what the message of the gospel is about. That is, that whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven and cleansed through his life, death and resurrection. And that message and that opportunity of salvation is available to all. Baptism proclaims, it symbolises what the gospel is. But second of all, and this is the part I think that interests Jesus here, baptism is also the starting point on a journey of discipleship and of learning Christ. Baptism is... Uh, the starting point on a journey of discipleship and learning Christ. So baptism doesn't guarantee that a person is in or out. It doesn't guarantee that they're saved or not saved. It's not a public affirmation of their prof- that their profession of faith is true. It doesn't make people spiritual. It doesn't make them new people. It doesn't guarantee that they're saved or not saved. It's just a sign that marks out what the gospel is and that marks out those people who receive it as far as we can see as people who are on a journey of learning Christ. It marks out people as far as we can, who as far as we can see are on a journey of learning Christ. So not everyone who receives that sign of baptism will make it to the end. They won't continue 
on that path of discipleship to the end. As Jesus says, some people will receive the gospel with joy or start out on that path, but they won't go on because they didn't count the cost at the beginning. Baptism, in other words, is a sign of being incorporated into a community gathered around Jesus where Jesus is known and loved and taught and where the people who have joined themselves to that community are being taught to know and love Jesus uh, as well. Now, some people are brought into that community because they're born into that community. They don't make a decision to join it, but they're born into it, and by virtue of that fact, by virtue of their birth, they grow up being taught to know and love Jesus. From the earliest days of their life, they're being discipled to know and love Jesus. Their parents are teaching them who Jesus is. Their parents are teaching them to confess sin. Their parents are teaching them to, rep- to repent and turn to Christ. Being discipled to know and love Jesus, being born in that community, doesn't save them. But as they grow, it will become increasingly clear whether that's a message that they accept or that they reject. Whether the truth about Jesus has taken root in their lives and they are living as a disciple of Jesus or whether the truth about Jesus has not taken root in their lives and they have no interest in him. So too, some people will join that community where Jesus is known and loved and taught in adulthood. They'll come to the point where they say, I want to know and follow Christ and trust him. But again, becoming part of that community and being baptised into that community is not a guarantee that they'll make it to the end. It's not a guarantee that they'll continue in the faith. What it means, though, is that they've joined the the community where Jesus is known and loved and taught and they're being taught to know and love Jesus. And as they grow, as they spend time in the, on that path of discipleship, it will become increasingly clear whether they have truly accepted Jesus or whether their desire to know and love Jesus is not real. Baptism is not the end of a journey, but the beginning of a journey of knowing and being discipled to know and love Jesus. You might wonder why any of this matters. Why does it matter? Why does understanding baptism matter for understanding discipleship and making disciples? Well, it matters because we need to understand that very clearly, that baptism is the beginning of something, not the end of something. It's the beginning of a life of learning Christ. So Jesus says to his disciples, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But so frequently in the history of the church, baptism has been understood as the kind of graduation marker. It's, you're over the line. Done. Or, in the history of the church, it's, it comes at the end of a long period of catechesis, that is, of instruction in the faith. And you have to go through all these processes before you can finally graduate. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives us of baptism. Baptism is 
the beginning of a journey, not the end of one. The goal of the journey is complete obedience to Jesus. It's complete obedience to the King who reigns over the whole world. Complete obedience in everything. The goal is not just to tip people into the kingdom, to get them over the line. The goal is to bring them to maturity in Jesus. As one person has noted, uh, Jesus here doesn't just say, proclaim the gospel. He says, make disciples. Make lifelong learners of Jesus. Our aim is not just to get people over the line, but to teach them to know and love Jesus and to keep growing in that. What does that mean? It means that we can't play off one thing against another. We can't play off mission against maturity. We can't play off teaching disciples against making new disciples. It means that the follow-up of uh, teaching disciples of, of new Christians is just as important as making new Christians in the first place. That's why when the disciples evangelized new areas, they also planted churches. They didn't just get people over the line and then leave them to get on with their business, but they converted them. They, they brought them to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and they formed them into communities where they could grow and increase in the love and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, where they could grow in knowing what it means to follow Christ. But it also means that making new disciples is just important as teaching existing disciples. So we can't shirk the mission that Jesus has given us by insisting that we're committed to teaching. We can't just say, well, I'm a, I'm a teaching person, so I don't have any interest in the mission, of the ch- in the mission out there. You know, I'm just focused on this, you go off and do that. In fact... Teaching people to obey all that Jesus has commanded means teaching them to make disciples. So to be a disciple is to be involved in making disciples, which is to say that we haven't learned what it is to be a disciple until we've learned what it means to make disciples of others. We have to do both. So that means that Christianity Explored is just as important as Sunday school or Conversely, that a sermon series on Exodus is just as important as an evangelistic sermon series, which is trying to reach new people. They're both important. Because Jesus is not just calling us to make mere Christians. He's calling us to make mature disciples and mature disciples from every nation. So Jesus gives us, his church, this global mission to make disciples in every place uh, in every nation, whether here or elsewhere. And he gives that task uh, to his church, uh, not only to bring them in, but to teach them. Finally, Jesus gives us an encouragement. He says in verse 20, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' commission to his disciples is accompanied by the promise of his presence. In fact, there's this beautiful interplay in this chapter uh, between Jesus coming and the disciples going. So Jesus comes to his disciples and they go, and as they go, he goes with them. That's a profound idea, I think, 
if we think about that deeply. You see, the best that you or I can offer when we send someone away, when someone leaves us or goes to the mission field or engages in ministry for Jesus, the best that you and I can offer is that we'll pray for them or that we'll write to them or that we'll think of them or that we'll send money to support them. And I, don't, I do not want to diminish those things. Those things are precious and valuable But Jesus promises something so much more than that. He promises not just that his thoughts will be with us, but that he will be with us. He's with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and as we go, he goes with us. As our missionaries go to the far side of the world, as they go on their own to places where few of us will ever likely visit them. As they go, he goes with them. And even now, while we are here and they are there, he's there with them. As you go with the message of the gospel to make disciples wherever God is calling you, Jesus goes with you as you go to your family or your workplace or your local supermarket or your classroom or your community group or your neighbor's house. Jesus goes with you. Even if you go alone, Jesus goes with you. And if God should call you to go to another place, to another town or another state or another country for the sake of the gospel, he will go with you. As you leave your friends behind or your family behind or your house behind or your favorite hobbies behind, as you leave behind things that maybe will never be replaced, Jesus goes with you. And who is this Jesus that goes with you? It's the one to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who goes with you is not just a, a good friend or a nice traveling companion but the Lord of heaven and earth. It's great, isn't it, to have a a friend to go with you when you go on holidays or when you go to the other side of the world. That's great, but Jesus is not just a friend. He's the sovereign king of the universe. As you go and make disciples in situations that you can't control, that threaten your life or your livelihood or your friendships or your dignity, Jesus goes with you and he will protect you. That doesn't mean that you'll get to keep everything that you fear to lose. But it does mean that when you lose it, Jesus will still be in control. And you will still be in his hands. And your present and your future remain securely locked in his eternal and unchangeable good purposes. It means that as you go and make disciples, the success or the failure of your mission rests in his hands, not yours. It means that if your mission seems to fail, it's not because of your inadequacy, but because of his plan and purpose. And if the mission succeeds, it's not because of your greatness, but because of his abounding love and mercy. All authority rests in his hands not your hands, but he is with you wherever you go. 
And for how long will he be with us? Jesus says, always and even to the very end of the age. Even our best friends will not always be with us. Neither can we always be with our best friends. I suspect that when Elizabeth Elliot married her husband, Jim Elliot, she expected to be embarking on a lifetime of shared mission. Serving God together, reaching the Quechua tribe of Ecuador with the message of the gospel. It was probably never her vision, never part of her plan to be widowed within four years and to spend the next eight years ministering alone among the people who killed her husband. She probably thought that when she married, she was beginning a missionary partnership where she would go together with her husband. But although she was widowed, she was not alone. Christ was with her always, even to the very end of the age. Not even the best human relationship is a permanent relationship. No one can guarantee that they'll be with us tomorrow or the day after or the day after that. But Jesus guarantees what nobody else can. He guarantees that he'll always be with us, even to the very end of the age. I think that being on mission for Jesus is a terrifying task and an overwhelming task. It involves great sacrifice and great cost. It involves dying to ourselves and losing our lives. But it also involves gaining our lives and winning others to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But most important of all, it means going not on our own, but it means going with Jesus, with his constant companionship, with his authority and his power always, even to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who left uh, his glory in heaven to enter into our world to make you known to us. And not only to make you known, but to rescue and to redeem us, to die in our place, to rise from the dead. And he is now enthroned and rules over everything. And in his hands is all authority on heaven and on earth. And Lord, we thank you that many of us here this morning have come to know the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and also to come under his rule and his authority as king over our lives and over this world. But Lord, he's left, uh, Lord uh, God, you've left us with this task uh, to make that known, to make known to people the glory of Christ, the honour and the dignity 
the power of Christ and the mercy and the grace of Christ who invites people to come to him, not as enemies but as friends, to come under his rule, not as something which wears people down but which gives rest and revitalization, under his rule which remakes us as the people that you made us to be. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take that invitation, that news, into the world. Lord, help us to do it together as a community, as a people, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do it together. Help us to do it in our own lives, in the places where you've put us. And help us, Lord, as we go, to always be mindful that you go with us. That your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we should fear no evil. For you are with us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.